1: You're listening to the Sands Pants Network.
0: Home of comedy,
1: (laughs) culture, (laughs) adventures and ghosts. everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Demarels. This is the show we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you? Today on the show we have an applied mathematician, fluid mechanist and science writer, as well as hosting the Cosmos Magazine's daily science podcast, Dr. Sophie Calabretto. How are you?
2: I'm very well. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. I don't get to go on other people's podcasts particularly often or at all, so that's fun.
1: Oh, well, that's great. Yeah, because your podcast (laughs) is not like an interview. It's more just you talking, isn't it?
2: Oh, I mean, so I talk to the Cosmos journalist. So basically the journalist will do a bunch of stories every week for Cosmos and then they'll pick one of the cool stories and then we just have like a bit of a chat about it and it's a bit of a back and forth. So it's sort of like an interview, but also they're just telling me about science and I'm reacting in a natural way because I think science is very fun. And yeah, so it's it's interviewing, but it's not interviewing. I don't get to necessarily come up with the questions. I just get to lead the discussion about science.
1: Okay, well, I mean, that's kind of... <laughs> That's just rephrasing what coming up with questions is, but
2: okay. <laughs> sure. Yeah.
1: I don't come up with the questions. I just ask questions that lead things. I just ask questions
2: way. about science. Yeah, no, it's, it's really cool. And it means that, yeah, we, it's a short podcast every day. And so it's, if you're interested in what's happening in science, but you can't be bothered reading things, someone can just talk in your ears for sort of four to seven minutes about cool stories in science that week. So
1: yeah. Yes. To be honest, you have so many ones I would love to hear heaps about on that list. I know you're probably, you've been asked this probably a trillion times, so I'm sure you've got a perfect answer for it. So a fluid mechanist, fluid mechanics, what is it? Yes. Can you tell everyone what, how it works, what, what you learn from
2: it? Yeah. That kind of so essentially being a fluid mechanist just means that I'm interested in why fluid flows the way it does at a fundamental level, right? Because we have fluid everywhere. So when I say fluid, just think of like anything that flows which means that like air and water are both fluids. Anything that's a gas or a liquid is a fluid. So they're everywhere, like literally everywhere. Like if you're not solid, you're a fluid. And then also you've got, (laughs) you know, plasma, which is the fourth state of matter, which is kind of like a bit fluidy. So essentially if it's not solid, it's a fluid. And we just sort of don't understand a lot of the things that it does. And so what I was interested in or what I'm interested in and my PhD students still are, it's looking at why fluid goes from behaving very nicely and moving in what we call a laminar way. So if you think of a pipe and you've got some fluid moving down a pipe, moving in layers, it's all chilled out. It's just water flowing through a pipe. Why it goes from being that before it becomes like a little unstable, before it transitions into the state of full turbulence, because turbulent fluid flow is actually chaotic fluid flow, as in mathematical chaos, butterfly effect, kind of Jurassic Park, Ian Malcolm thing. We can't predict turbulence. And so essentially we have fluid everywhere that we don't quite understand, and then it moves into this state that we can visualise really easily. We know it's there, but we don't necessarily know the causes. We can't control it. And so that's what I was sort of interested in as a fluid mechanist. And so my background is mathematics, but you'll also have fluid mechanists who are physicists or engineers, and essentially the difference is approach to solving problems.
1: Right. And like in what way? Like is in some are more practical, some are more... Mathematical or?
2: Yeah. So like in mathematics, I like to say that mathematicians are snobs in the way that they approach things because we start from, you know, the equations, we start from the bottom up. So we've got the Navier-Stokes equations, which are the equations that govern all fluid motion. So any fluid problem in the universe you can describe with the Navier-Stokes equations. And so then we do, we look at, you know, a particular problem. We say, okay, we can cancel that term. We can get rid of this. We can, that's a boundary condition. We can simplify this thing and then we can solve the problem. I think a physicist might potentially start the next level up with a few assumptions that maybe haven't been mathematically justified, and then the engineers are a level above that. So essentially, I'm just insulting all physicists I know, I love and that you're engineers. Saying, We're
1: the baseline. We, uh... um,
2: you know, having said that, I did my undergrad was actually in physics and theoretical physics, so I started in physics and I moved to applied math. So I do have a little. I can sort of comment on a physicist's approach to fluid mechanics, but yeah. So it's just understanding why. Fluid does what it does because it's everywhere and we don't quite get it sometimes.
1: And and fluid in this point is anything that moves, essentially? Anything
2: that flows. So I was more anything interested in, yeah, liquidy fluids like water and such. Um, well, but These then, words
1: sound like vaguely dirty somehow. Right, they <laughs> do. I,
2: I think my favorite thing whenever I get interviewed for anything is um when people ask me about my background, I give them my little story and then I say I went to university and I fell in love with all things fluid and the number of people who print that is it's just sensational I really enjoy it Mm. it's interesting interesting yeah
1: that's that's like firstly I would have so many random questions for you. Like, Actually, this is just, again, me asking random questions now, but I remember reading about this a while ago in terms of um, looking at crowds of people in terms of flow and how that relates to the – and it's weirdly similar in some ways to the flow of other things. Is that something which is true?
2: Yeah, I think from my understanding, yeah. So basically when you get large groups of people, because essentially what you have is – a lot of finite particles or people. But then when you put them in certain situations, they will tend to exhibit behavior that looks like flowing fluid in terms of pressure densities and other stuff. It's sort of crazy. And then even if you look at, you know, sort of pressure waves, which we tend to get with compressible fluids, which are gases. So like air, you know, is compressible, whereas water isn't compressible. You know, if you look at traffic, you get these weird pressure waves that kind of look like, you know, you can you think about it as air, sort of like pressure coming in and moving out. And if you look at traffic, you get these pressure waves that move through it. So there's all these weird instances where things that you don't think should look like a fluid do. But, yeah, I think the crowd one is definitely yeah. real. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I always think that's interesting. And, again, again this, this might be going off in a different direction, but from my understanding, the theoretical underpinnings now, like the math essentially of it all, like sometimes people don't realise how, fundamental that is to what everyone else is doing and it's sometimes Hmm. the Sometimes even the foundations there—they just work. Sometimes, especially from my understanding in physics, this stuff where people are like just shut up and calculate. Let's not think about what this means. It's just this just works with how it is. And like so, even stuff like satellites and whatever, like people don't realize how much the theoretical stuff is there, which then people yeah. build on to.
2: Well, I mean, even think about you know COVID modeling recently. Like it's all mathematical epidemiologists who are doing that modeling. So in terms of numbers and predictions of all that kind of stuff, that is a mathematician with an understanding of how diseases spread. I thought it was really funny because, of course, you're hearing in the news all these things about exponential growth and all this stuff, and you're like, "I wonder how many people actually know what exponential growth is." To most people, that's just it gets really big, right, really quickly. But an exponential function is actually a mathematical function. Like, there's a difference between exponential growth or polynomial growth, or you know, it just depends. So it's just like I just, that. I just always think squared. Yeah, right. So that's um. So <laughs> that's-, that's a polynomial. <laughs> whereas exponential is kind of it's a bit quicker right so it is this interesting thing quicker than squared so it's this thing where it's kind of now become pervasive in society but there's still this kind of lack of understanding which is you know also reasonable i'm not going to criticize people for not knowing what exponential growth is because i think you have to depending on the state that you're in you have to get to at least the end of high school if not the beginning of university, to start looking at those things in great detail, and a lot of people get really scared of maths really early on, and they're not doing it at the end of high school or at university. So, it yeah, but it is interesting that it's maths that just it's maths is the language with which we engage with the modern world. George, everyone needs to remember that. <laughs> without without maths, we don't have science, and without science, we don't have progress. So you know, yep. maths is important.
1: You know, I'm not going to consider no man. That's nerds, <laughs> no. right? Forget it. So, I mean, a book podcast. <laughs>
2: oh, yes. Yeah, you're right.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So your book of choice for today is?
2: It is The Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham.
1: Great. This is the first time I've ever had someone on where I didn't ask them this book beforehand.
2: I, I was wondering <laughs> so, how that was going to work.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, usually I've just realized before going on, I was like, oh, I didn't ask her the book. I can't do any reason. You just spent like an hour like checking it all out before the show. I'm flying in a bit blind here. So you're sure. going to have to... I give a brief summary of what, what it's about.
2: Yeah. What might help is, have you ever seen that really terrible no- 1995 John Carpenter film, The Village of the Damned?
1: I've, I think I know enough about it.
2: Okay. So it's yes, the yeah. novel that that movie was based on, but the novel is very good. And I think I shouldn't criticise John Carpenter. I think it does a lot of good things, but I don't think that was one of them. So essentially it's this idea that we have, there's a small town in small made up town in the UK called Midwich. Um, and all of a sudden it just gets cut off from the rest of the world. So basically they notice that they can't get through to the town. I think there's an ambulance that goes in to try and sort out what's going on. Um, And basically once everyone gets within a certain distance of this town centre, they essentially collapse and they faint. And they work out and they get this canary, they test it out, they take the canary across, it passes out, they bring it back, it wakes up. So there's this kind of dead zone centred around this this town and they start calling it the day out because basically the next day Everyone wakes up and it's all fine, uh, but they looked at some of these overhead shots and they found that there was this big kind of silvery weird thing in the middle of this this midwitch common, the green in the middle. And then after that, every single woman of childbearing age becomes pregnant with um, a baby and it turns out that potentially they're not their babies. I mean, so essentially what happens is the children are very advanced. They all look the same. They can communicate telepathically there's kind of two consciousnesses there's the the boys and the girls they develop really really quickly and then they turn out to be not necessarily evil but they're there for survival sort of in the way that when you know a cuckoo will lay its eggs in other birds nests and then they would hatch and then it will eat course, them yeah. um yeah, yeah. and um i don't know can i give spoilers for a book that was written in the 50s
1: uh look I guess, yeah. Why not?
2: I mean, because essentially what happens is, like, they realize that the children are a problem because they start hurting people when they feel like they've been wronged, and then eventually they just kill all the children. But it's okay because they're not real children. They're kind of strange alien children. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, that's the odd book that I've picked. (laughs)
1: That is an interesting choice. And as you're saying that, I was like, oh, yeah, Village of the Damned. Because I just remember the blonde-haired children all talking. Yeah, and
2: then their this, like eyes that. glow and then they can make yeah, you yeah, do yeah. things. Yeah. So there's actually, if anyone's going to watch any Village of the Damned things, there's a movie, it was, I think it was 1960, that has Barbara Shelley and George, George Sanders in it. And old black and white horror, but sensational. So that one's really good. And then, really? in fact, they've just done a I guess a reimagining, like a Stan series. I don't think it was produced by Stan, but it's this British series that you can watch on Stan, um, and it's literally just come out. and I finished watching it the other day, and I thought they did a very nice job. But oh, um, okay. and then yeah, and then watched the John Carpenter one last. Like it does have Kirstie Alley in it, which is great, but it's just not it's not a good movie. Not great. <laughs> no,
1: John Carpenter nails it with some other like the yeah, thing, but I guess, yeah right
2: sensational, but it was just wasn't his best work. I don't think. Oh.
1: Okay. Um, so I guess uh, straight off the bat, I guess, why why did you pick this as your favorite? What made it stand out for you?
2: I mean, I guess it's just this book that I've always really loved, but it's it's got that, that science undertone where you're constantly trying to understand and work out what's going on, but it's also sort of not grotesque and in your face. And I think when you read the book, there's a lot of room for sort of conjecture. So as they're sort of feeding you these little tidbits and bits of information about these children and about what had happened around the day out. And then it had turned out that there were a bunch of other communities around the world who'd had similar things happen and various things. You know, so you sort of, it's about kind of taking all these little pieces of the puzzle and you can sort of start to piece them together and then you're given a new piece of information. So I think it's that kind of slowly problem solving, you know, what is going on here? And then also it's just a really creepy story. And so, yeah, charming
1: right. And when did, you, when did you first read it?
2: I reckon I would have been, I reckon it was my early teens that I would have. And then I got into John Wyndham in a big way. So he's got a lot, if you like sort of old, non-confrontational sci-fi, there's a bunch of really good stories that he's done. So, you know, he did Day of the Triffids and the Chrysalids and Chalky and a bunch of cool things. But, yeah, it would have been early teens and then I think, it's just one of those ones that I've just picked up again and again over the years as a bit of comfort reading, like in the way that, you know, there was a period of my life where I did that with Harry Potter where you're just like I just want to read something that I have to think about that much and I find it like a bit comforting and it was one of those. Although it's interesting that it's yeah, it's a bit of a weird story to be comforted by. And then they killed all of the yeah. alien children. <laughs>
1: Yeah, look, there's no no need to read into that. No, <laughs> they murdered children at the end. Let's not talk about that. That's a... No, that's fine. <laughs> um, the no, I totally understand. So, I guess are you a sci-fi fan in general, or is this?
2: It's yeah, I, re- I do really like sci-fi, but I think I probably like horror more. And I would say that this is on the cusp of sci-fi horror. And I think. You know, as I got older, there's you know more and more horror that I can digest. But when you're in your early teens, things are a bit scary. Whereas this is not scary horror. This is horror that you could show to a family member who wants to be interested, but is get scared by everything. Yeah, I think I worked out the other day that my two favorite genres are documentaries and horror when it comes to film. And so, of course, the true crime thing is very good for me at the moment. I was so going to say into is. making true crime, and I'm like, it's a documentary about horrible things. Amazing. It's like, they made this for me. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) So and I guess this all like ties into, so I I, I find because you're the second person I've had on from a science background who Mm -hmm. also had an interest in like, they were more fantasy based. Well, this is sci-fi, but I guess, was there a link between that when you were younger? Did you feel like there was a science sci-fi like that? Or was it just, you just like turning your brain off and that's more why?
2: Probably a little bit of both. If I think about all of my friends, I probably liked sci-fi a bit more. I think I had friends who were quite into fantasy But I was probably more into the classic sci-fi, and I think part of it is because you do have those kind of the fun science elements where they've taken something that's real in science and then they've kind of warped it into this really interesting narrative. Also, and then also because it's detached from reality, I think it is a really nice way to zen out. Like I, I think that's why I find going to the cinema the ultimate form of escapism right because you're just like taken into it doesn't matter what's happening in your life you go there you sit there with a glass of wine and you watch the movie and it just kind of someone else's story just kind of yeah leeches all over you and you end up in this like completely different world so i think it's probably yeah, a combination of the science but then like that nice kind of escapism in the fiction as well
1: well yeah because i was going to say i think that actually makes sense i could firstly i totally agree with the cinema thing there's nothing else quite like it when you just go to the dark room it's just Mm-hmm. just chilling yeah uh, but yeah that that need for the the escapism as well because i imagine maths is uh difficult yeah <laughs> it
2: can, can be, be it can be really hard to so turn yeah turn your brain off and i think that's a really good way to turn your brain off
1: hmm. like because were you doing were you interested in that stuff even back then you were like a mathsy uh
2: I, I probably thought like when growing up, I was either going to become like a marine biologist or an Olympic sprinter. <laughs> um, but yes. I, it was funny because, I I mean, I used to be for my age quite fast. And then I had this thing where I didn't like disappointing people. And so my first year of athletics, I was state ranked in a couple of different. So I think I did discus javelin, long jump, and 100 were my events. And I did quite well. And then there was this realization, if I come back next year, And I do really badly. People are going to have expectations that I'm not going to do badly and I don't want to disappoint them. So I'll just quit. And so anyway, it's a pretty unhealthy way to approach life. Everyone can be pleased to know that I don't do that anymore. That's fine.
1: It's just so polite. I feel like that is very much a... Yeah, teenage thing as well. You just don't to disappoint anyone. Yeah, I just don't
2: know. want to disappoint people. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I think I did always, there was always that interest in science. So I went to university to do, I did a science arts double degree because I wanted to become an astrophysicist. But then I also did like language, I learned French in high school and I wanted to try things like Latin and philosophy. And it wasn't until I got to university and realized it wasn't the physics or the astrophysics I liked. It was applying maths to real world problems to solve them. And so that's sort of how I ended up. Yeah. So it was always more of a science bend than probably a maths bend. And then it was like sort of realization that in all of these things that I like solving in science, it's actually maths that's doing it. So why not just go whole hog and go maths?
1: Yeah, look, it's, it, it's slightly terrifying the very idea of studying like maths to that degree. Also, it's like sli- slight tangent, but uh, my whole life, I've always actually preferred saying math instead of maths.
2: I think you grammatically think it it's actually sense. more correct. Yeah. Because mathematics is what? It's it's a plural noun, but when you abbreviate them usually, I think you, you drop the S. There's there's something yeah, about it. Do. Like I read something, yeah, so I think it's it's um, math is sure probably more, more correct. correct. Yeah.
1: And, and I feel like it just sounds more classier. Math, <laughs> like math you know, than maths. Instead of maths.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I'm, that's I'm a good real point. good at my maths. I'm real good at my maths. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. But yeah, I think I just, yeah, I've been conditioned to say maths.
1: Yeah, I know. So I, I, I've been faking it, but you know what? The rest of the interview, you I'm just you got go to go with your
2: heart. You know, yeah, if exactly, it's math you know? in your heart, it's math in your heart.
1: Exactly. So, so yes, math is hard, <laughs> <laughs> but no, as a it does terrify me the idea of just studying it to that degree because I love the idea of having very much not the same. But I remember in university because I studied finance, there was in second year you actually used a mathematical like equation to show why two shops selling the same product will always end up right next to each other.
2: Interesting.
1: Yeah. Like that, since then I've learned that finance loves to turn things into math when it maybe isn't even necessary. But, <laughs> but at that point I was like, wow, using numbers and you're showing that, you know, cause you don't, you want to get the neutral customer whatever. But that was the first time I'd seen it like applied anything to the real world. I was like, Oh, this is real cool. Like you're using yeah. calculation to show this, I guess.
2: Oh, well, I think that's the hard thing. Right. So I think, you know, Often when I tell people that I'm a mathematician, you know, you get the reaction of like, oh, I hated maths or I'm terrible at maths. There's a lot of pride that goes with disliking maths for some reason. And I think it's because it's one of those things that there are so many building blocks that you need to get to the interesting problems. That if you miss some of those blocks, you end up being in a lot of trouble. So if you think about someone at primary school and, you know, you hit a topic that like they just don't quite get. I don't. I genuinely don't believe that anyone is bad at maths. I believe that people have missed the things that they need to or there's been areas where they haven't had someone who's been able to talk to them in a way that they understand. And if you look at, like, the schooling system, like, I'm, of course I'm not blaming teachers. Like, you've got 30 students and, like, you've got to get through this stuff. And if there's a couple of students who don't get that concept in that particular way, you know, you don't have the time to be individually tailoring your approach for every maths topic, for every student. So they miss that particular thing. They don't quite get it. And then you move on to the next topic, which builds from the previous one. So if you've got a lack of understanding here, it means that you get to the next bit and that's even more confusing. And then you get to the next bit and you've missed the last two things that you're meant to understand. And then you get to the point where you're like, I don't understand any of this. None of this makes sense. And the problem is I think catching up can be quite difficult. You really need to be able to apply yourself or have someone to sit down and really help you Make up those deficits, and if you don't, that you end up getting adults who are terrified of maths. And then, like learning to add and subtract and balance equations is not fun for a lot of people because it's this really abstract process that doesn't seem to have any point. But it's like you need all those skills to then get to these really cool applications. And so I think that's why you know maths is this idea of being like very very tricky. I've done maths for a long time. Like I'm not bad at maths because I studied it for all of primary school all of high school and then into university. And it's like if you study anything for that long, like you're going to get it more, right? Like I don't think I'm any more special than anyone else. I couldn't think of anything better to do and I had some perseverance, right? And then I just did math for a really long time. So I think it's, yeah, it is a really difficult topic and I think, yeah, on average people hate it or they're scared of it and it's because they haven't seen all the places that it's super useful but that's because they haven't been able to for whatever reason.
1: Yeah, like even I – can kind of get that but even I, I probably haven't got the kind of base to go beyond I was high school and I didn't, st- I didn't study maths in university. Yeah. Is there like a suggestion, is there courses or a book if someone wanted to like brush up? Funny enough, I was actually looking at this recently so I'm actually curious, is that something you, you hear about? Like, oh, I want to be able to understand maths better. Is there like Yeah,
2: like there are – I mean there's just a lot of like really great online resources but what I would say is like check – there's so many good YouTube videos where if there's a particular concept, if you just like look at that on YouTube. So there's Khan Academy which is – pretty reasonable. Um, and they do stuff that's sort of more university level, but it's just someone there just stepping you through things really, really clearly. So I would say it's like having your own private tutor, right? I'm not really sure about, you know, sort of, there are books and there are online resources and other things, but I think the the number of really good YouTube videos about maths and then other science things is just, it's outstanding out, and it's all free. So...
1: Yeah, it's pretty wild how you can, like, if you just put it in the effort, you can learn kind of anything.
2: <laughs> this 100%. Thing, yeah. I taught myself how to crochet from YouTube videos when I lived in Switzerland because <laughs> it was too expensive to go outside.
1: <laughs> just to go outside. As soon as you step outside, bang. It's, it's just, just everything. Bang. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> so you learned how to crochet instead.
2: Yeah. So I would sit at home and crochet and I got to the point where, like, I can crochet. So, if you know, all of my friends are having babies now and I crochet little toys for babies or... Various things like bags and gloves and scarves and, yeah, it's a lot of fun. No. It means um, that you I can guess- watch trashy horror and then have something to show at the end of it. Like if you watch an entire evening of really bad horror, you're like, but I made this thing. It's fine. I didn't waste my evening.
1: That's actually pretty good. That's a pretty good plus. Yeah, you're just putting yeah. it together because you don't need to think that much. So, yeah. yeah. Nice. I love that. That's productive. <laughs> yeah. I guess on that.
3: Planning for your next trip?
0: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Right, so, because so, yeah, you've moved around a bit as part mm. of this study and looking at different things. Is that something you wanted to do or is that something just part of parcel of like having to pursue what you wanted to do?
2: Yeah, I think with academia, you have to be pretty... Okay. With moving around. So basically like I grew up in Adelaide, I did my undergrad there. I did honors. I started my PhD there. And then my supervisor got a job in New Zealand. And so me and another student went over with him because we were sort of early on in our PhDs. And so didn't feel completely self-reliant we've got this very convenient situation where Australians can go to New Zealand and you're just a domestic student. So it's sort of fairly easy to live there. So I did my PhD at the University of Auckland. Then I got a postdoc at ETH in Zurich, which is the sort of big federal science and technology institution there. And I have to say I hated it for a variety of reasons. And I was like, do you know what? I don't think academia is for me. Uh, And then I got recruited back to Australia into a lecturing position at Macquarie University because being young a woman, applied mathematician, and able to make eye contact, like eighty to ninety percent of the time, means that there aren't that many. And I shouldn't, I shouldn't be dismissive of mathematicians. There's a lot of mathematicians with very good social skills, but there aren't that many mathematicians, and there are fewer women. And then, in terms of women who work in the area that I do, there are a handful in Australia at least. I then ended up in academia, and I became then a senior lecturer but I wasn't really enjoying it a lot. I do think in Australia we have a bit of a problem with the tertiary education sector crumbling. I think we are not necessarily offering students the best education that they could be getting and they're paying a lot of money for it these days. I paid a lot of money for my degree and I think that my deg- the quality of my degree was better than the quality of a lot of the degrees now and potentially they're paying more now. And, um I didn't really want to be part of that system. And so when everything started to die after COVID uh, and they offered voluntary redundancies to people, I jumped at that because I thought if someone was going to pay me to leave a job that I wasn't really loving, I'd do that. And then, yeah, I ended up in the freelance science writing, communicating field. But back to your original question, you have to be prepared to move around in academia. I think there's probably a bit of suspicion of people who just stay in the same place. It's like, could you not get a job at a different university? Like, what is going on? There's kind of an expectation that you'll move around a a bit in the beginning, at least. And so, you know, I see someone who's done their undergrad and their PhD and their postdoc, and now they're working at the same institution. It does sometimes make me go... Why can't you or won't you go somewhere else? Like what's what's wrong here? Which is also an unfair generalization, but it does seem a bit odd. But yeah, I think you have to have to be prepared to move. It's been nice in some ways, but moving internationally is also not the most fun thing ever. So there's, I'd say, pros and cons.
1: Mm. I got stuck on one thing you said there just because you were saying how the academia here in Australia... You're not a fan of because of a lot of headwinds. I feel like especially the last 11, 12 years, uh, the, the government has not been a fan of people learning things. <laughs> it's um, <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think what it comes down to is it's just horribly underfunded and then the, you have this expectation on academics that they're both, they're teaching, they're doing good research, they're attracting research funding, and then there's all this other kind of service. And and for me, that was mainly outreach, you know, so going out and spruiking university and maths to people, uh, which I didn't mind doing, but... Yeah, I got to the point where I wasn't comfortable spruking I didn't think people right, should again. necessarily be coming to do the things or doing the things that all I was right. te- I was trying to sell to them. But I think that yeah, we do have a really big problem in this country, and it does come down to funding. The year before, they dropped the hex cost of all of the maths courses in Australia, and everyone went, "That's great, more people do maths." What they don't realize is those academics have to teach the same number of students, if not more students, because they've gone like, oh, this is cheaper, I'll do maths now, for that less amount of money they're paying. Like they're paying hex money that goes to the institution to put together that course. So if they drop the price of the course, they're dropping the amount of money that is going to those people doing the teaching. So now you have less money to teach the same stuff with potentially more students. And I think people there's this disconnect to it. So everyone goes like, that's great. Like the government wants more people to do maths and it's like, okay, but if the government wants more people to do maths, like make those maths degrees really, really good fund these things properly. And that's not what they're doing by dropping hex fees. Right.
1: Right. Okay. I didn't even know that. Yeah. I just assumed it would be like supporting it somehow because like,
2: yeah, which would, which would be absolutely fine. Like if that's what was going on, that would be perfect if they went, okay, it's cheaper for everyone, but we're going to make up that deficit. So you can still deliver the same high quality course, but you've got the same number of academics having to teach more students or the same number of students for less money. And that, you know, that does become an issue.
1: Yeah, that's I didn't expect that. Um, But you also mentioned that that, uh, even in Zurich, you were feeling the academic thing wasn't for you.
2: Yeah, it was the group that I was working in. And I just felt like I had, it's like I'd got this job and then I went over there and the person who had hired me actually had no idea about what my background or experience was. So I was asked to do a bunch of things that, like I didn't know how to do, which is fine, I could learn, but they didn't want someone to learn. They wanted someone who could already do those things. And I was just like, I don't, like I know that I didn't misrepresent myself. You know, I know I said the things I knew how to do. And then there was also just like a bit of an issue with, the. you know, I think there is this pressure in a lot of academic institutions to be publication factories. So you've got to be publishing, but you've got to be doing things of note. Um, And so people are just scrambling to come up with new ideas and new things and publish them to the point where, you know, you have to ask the question, are these things a tangible, are they making a tangible difference to the understanding of science or, you know, or that particular area? Like, is this significant? And it doesn't need to be like groundbreaking, but it is, have you just tweaked this parameter and now you've published another paper? Because if so, that's not, you know, you're not so adding anything. You're just yeah. wasting time, but you're getting another publication, which is what a lot of university, you know, essentially that is a metric that... Everyone values really highly, right? So, you know, you want publications, you want citations because it's those things that then get you grants. And universities like it when you get grants because you're bringing money into the university, right? So it's all, it's this kind of interconnected, weird. Yeah, I don't know. I think we need to, I don't think we're doing a great job in Australia, at least. And this is obviously, I'm, saying this from the disciplines that I've been in, you know, obviously academia is broad and there's every topic is studied and maybe the culture is different in, in some of the other ones. But I definitely found here that it was just not, I felt like I wasn't getting things out of it that I wanted. And I tried to be that kind of positive change that I thought needed to happen for, you know, kind of, I think I lasted about five and a half years. And it was just back from all these different levels. And it's like, these people don't want to fix these problems. So, um, I'll I'll take your money and I'll go. Thanks very much.
1: Right, that that makes. good way to do it but it's, it's funny you it remind me of something i read because i i love newsletters my email newsletters always getting new ones for one of them it's this guy who studies like has a lot of questions about research and stuff and frames it through publications and like looking analyzing papers that come out and using that to kind of form opinions about like like how ideas grow and where mm-hmm. ideas come from and stuff like that and one of the times i read it i think the claim was is it getting harder to come up with stuff <laughs> and like I mean, the idea yeah. that, like and I think he was actually looking at it as well through the idea of Moore's Law, how uh, computational power doubles every 18 months or whatever, and he's saying how uh, that's actually stayed true, but what people don't realize is it's using more and more power to stay true. Like, But then he was like, mm-hmm. this translates across to actually most things. Like there isn't as much original stuff left anymore as there was before. Like it takes a lot more hours and work yeah. to get more forward because it's becoming more like... Because people have done everything, yeah. So I yeah, think it's is a weird idea. We're running out of ideas. Yeah. I saw a little quote from you where you were saying how uh, you've picked something which is hard, like as in there's, yeah. no, there's no low-hanging fruit left. There's no – yeah, exactly.
2: Mechanics. There's absolutely no low-hanging fruit left in fluid mechanics. So it's like if you're doing anything – so a lot of the stuff that I did was computational. So I used high-performance computing facilities to solve these really gnarly equations. And, you know, potentially you could run simulations for – six months or a year to get enough data for one paper because you're working on problems that are so hard that, you know, you can't do it by hand anymore. It's absolutely impossible. You take the equations, you simplify it, you can sort of compute these little things. But if you want an actual understanding of everything that's happening, you need a supercomputer and it takes a long time to run these high resolution things. And yeah, whereas, you know, in the 30s, like there were the, all of these groundbreaking papers where people just like smashing out this amazing stuff and these papers were six pages long and it was kind of here's this equation that does all this stuff and check it out amazing and you're just like wow imagine if you could do papers like that but yeah i think it's probably the same for a lot of different scientific disciplines like all of those low-hanging fruit are gone and so it just takes longer the prob- the obvious problems that are left are harder or you know the easy problems are harder to think of maybe they're not so obvious yes.
1: Yeah, but I, mean, I get – yeah, just maybe think of that because when you're saying how people have this publication pressure, it's like happening just at the time when maybe you should be publishing less than ever in a way because of how much work it now requires to do anything that's noteworthy I, I guess.
2: Yeah, whereas now, actually- yeah. Yeah, and as I said, you know, before that now the problem is that that is a metric that um, an academic's worth can be based on is the number of publications. So there is this um, motivation just to publish constantly and if that is trash. You know, I, had, I remember having a conversation with someone a few years ago and they said, oh, you know, you'll all have, everyone's got those publications and they're just like, oh, whatever, it's just a number and, you know, you're not particularly proud of them. And I'm like, I don't. Like everything that I have published Like, I believe that this is good work and it contributes significantly and I'm proud of it. Mm. And funnily enough, like, I didn't have anywhere near as many publications as this person. And maybe, you know, that just goes to show that I wouldn't have succeeded in academia because I wasn't willing just to publish trash to get, you know, those numbers up there. Like, I only wanted Mm. to make actual contributions. (laughs) Well, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it is interesting. (laughs)
1: Yeah, this might be a difficult thing to even explain, but I I haven't even thought of this before, but is that something which is weird going into a field where it's like, guys, (laughs) there's nothing left here apart from really grinding esoteric stuff, which is still helpful, but it is not going to be satisfying like back in the day. Like this is going to be just nose to the grindstone and like... You're not going to be doing it in a weekend.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I guess like once you then do get those results, right, they're really, really satisfying because you're like, I have unlocked, you know, there's this new kind of vortex or like we never understood what happened when these two boundary layers collided properly on like the edge of a sphere. And now I can tell you like play by play exactly what happens and, you know, what physics are, you know, at the heart of it. And so maybe, yeah, so it's I guess it's because it takes longer to get to that satisfaction. Maybe the satisfaction is a bit more powerful. I don't know. That's assuming that you actually those goals or results or whatever though.
1: No way, way better. Just pump out a publication (laughs) a weekend that changes the world. So, so good.
2: Too easy, too (laughs) easy.
1: (laughs) Okay, there's actually, so one more thing as well from the personal experience with the STEM sort of things. In terms of, you mentioned before, your your rarity in uh, the field here, being both a woman and who can make eye contact, (laughs) which is rare. Like, is that something which you specifically try to improve on? Do you think there's a reason that it doesn't happen more or yeah, I guess what's your kind of stance on that?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because I think, you know, you do, I mean, maths and some of the other sciences like that do naturally attract sort of potentially more introverted people. And I would actually say that interestingly, I'm a natural introvert. So this kind of, This, you know, very natural confidence that you're seeing right now is from years of training being like, stop being a little, just like chill out. It's fine. Talk to people, look at them like you don't need to be worried. But yeah, so I think I got quite good at public speaking through necessity of, all right, we've got this event on and we need like one of the female students (laughs) to be there as well. Right. And so it's like, all right, Sophie, will do it. Yeah. And you know and that's happened you know and you get to the point where you end up on a lot of sort of panels and committees and stuff for similar reasons. <laughs> but yes yeah, so I think it was just developed out of a necessity and then I've really gone with it and I think you know there are a lot of I should say there are a lot of other great science communicators in maths but I think there are people who have actually focused on it quite a bit I think in, in academia it's different as well because there's not maybe an emphasis on the importance I worked with a lot of people who, like, okay, Sophie's a science communicator. Like she doesn't do research. And it's like, well, no, I actually do quite good research. But like you see me as this sort of one-sided person where I just go out and I talk to people about my maths is great and they should come and do maths. But it's like, look, if we don't have people doing that nowadays, you're not going to get anyone coming through the door to study maths with you. Because it's really competitive. Like if you think about going to a university open day. And you've got robots that throw Frisbees and you've got someone mixing stuff and exploding and there's all this amazing stuff and you're like, hey, come talk to us at the maths booth, right? So it's like you have to actually be, you probably actually have to work harder in maths to get people interested in what you're doing than you might in one of the sort of flashier sciences. Mm. Um, And then I thought, yeah, and I sort of got to the point where, at least in my old job, it's like, well, if I don't do this, who else is going to do it? And I do think... You know, I've got a bit of a problem, as you might tell, with the stigma surrounding maths. Like I think maths is great and I understand why it exists. Um, and I think one of the things that we can do to change that is representation. And I remember, you know, having been asked before, you know, who were my role models growing up, my women role models in my discipline. It's like I didn't have any. Like I remember my year eight science teacher was a champion. She didn't inspire me to become a mathematician, right? She just I think for her, like she was just like lovely and smart and it just made me see that you could be like a a highly intelligent person and a really good person. And I think that's sort of lacking in academia a little bit these days. You know, part of it is it's sort of just, I sort of fell into like the communication role, but then I have sort of gone with it and nurtured it a bit because I do think it's really important to have spokespeople for whatever. And then especially maths, which I think gets, gets a hard rap. And also, you know, as I said, I think it might've been before we started recording, but there are, or it could have been after we started recording, stereotypes exist for a reason. And sometimes they're unfounded and sometimes there is a bit of truth to them. And I think, you know, people that I've worked with, you know, the average mathematician can be a little bit odd and they're lovely people, but that can be a bit alienating. And so if you've got some flashy science and you've got a strange mathematician, like which one are you picking? So I think it's about just showing that any kind of person can do anything. Mm. So so I do enjoy the kind of the psychom and the outreach stuff because I do think it's important to have that kind of representation that maybe like I didn't have growing up
1: yeah and I guess uh, like even though this might go like Canada but did you feel even growing up like you <laughs> weren't like the other girls like as if you were more interested in that side of stuff or was it just kind of it just developed naturally It wasn't even something you noticed at all
2: Yeah, I think I didn't realize that I was so I think you know I grew up with parents who were these kinds of parents who were like you know work hard do the best you can and like we'll be proud of you like whatever and like you know whatever your interests are your interests and so they're sort of nurtured those so I didn't think my love of like science and maths was never made to be like a weird thing and then so I didn't feel that way I think you know in primary school I remember people thinking I was a bit smart and me just being like well I'm no we're like we're all good at different things right like so if you see that I can do science a science test well or something and you count that as smart that's fine but like I can't do the stuff that you can do right it probably wasn't until I got to high school and sort of later in high school where I was like, oh, there are two girls in this class. Like, what is happening here? And then, yeah, when you get to university, it was interesting because, as I said, I did an arts degree. So all of my arts subjects were either like 50-50 or like probably like more woman loaded. But then, yeah, in in maths and in physics, there weren't that many. You know, there were still, still people. And I think there were fewer in maths, actually. I think there were more in physics you know we need we need this representation of women because there aren't any women like it was something that I didn't even realize I think until I kind of got to university and when there are so few women here or you know what you end up seeing is even if you have kind of 50 50 start at the beginning of an undergraduate degree then they have everyone's favorite scissor diagram where like the number of women drop and the number of you know there was sort of the ratio of men and women like women drop men increase and then you cross over when you get to the kind of associate professor professor level like it's all guys and like few women and then you know you get to the executive levels and that becomes worse and worse so you know Mm. we start off with kind of Equal representation, like the numbers aren't good as you kind of move up in the hierarchies. So,
1: yeah, no, I can understand that. <laughs> I'm just picturing you in these classes with these math geek guys. You would have been, some of them would have been obsessed, surely, with you. you it
2: was, and problems. it was actually something that I had to become like really good at, where it's like people would perceive um, just friendliness as something that it wasn't. And it like, it was actually, it became like a huge problem because I had to be like, look, I see us as friends. Why is it that I have to constantly. Explain to, I mean, not everyone, but there were enough people being like, look, I'm really sorry if like, you've got something else out of this. Like I'm just, you know, and like a lot of the times, like I actually had like a boyfriend or something. And it was like, I don't, shouldn't have to use like that the existence of boyfriends as a justification that like, you need to stop with this weird attention. But like, it does actually like unhealthy, like that helps a lot. But yeah, it was, it was really interesting. Just the, I'm just talking to you like a human being, I'm being nice to you. And potentially you haven't had that many people do that or you know whatever it is and now you've perceived yeah Yeah, I mean that's true you know now you've perceived this as something that it's not and so now I'm in this awkward thing where you have to like really gently be like look I'm really sorry but you know no like this is not what you think it is like I just want to be friend, you know it's like it's like can be heartbreaking for people and it was like it was terrible and it was basically yeah because there were so few women and then potentially you know I've I guess you know I so I grew up with an older brother so I've like, you know, I played like a lot of sport and I could live rough house and I could do, you know, so I am equally comfortable interacting with men and women or anyone, you know, because gender is not binary. So, you know, anyone, whereas, you know, I think there were people who would maybe less confident interacting with someone of the opposite sex or whatever. And so it was, yeah, seen as me just being super friendly when I was just trying to be a nice person.
1: Yeah, it's it's so interesting because like that side, obviously the – um uh, let's say the 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 guy perspective with these incels and stuff like that of that sort of thing. Like they always only see their one silo thing of their time when they got knocked back by some chick who's being friendly. But it's like you would have taken so much work to not start getting really annoyed at how regularly these guys would miss. Like, yeah, I'm doing this. Again. It's been uh, yeah. It, oh yeah, no, it's next month now. Yeah, okay, someone's doing. Yeah. This
2: again. Because everyone thinks about it from their point of view. So, as you said, you know this guy's like, "Oh, she's not me back," but it's like, yeah, that woman has potentially had to do that like six times in the past six months, you know, and try and do it in a nice way because you know you're aware that you are potentially hurting people's feelings, and you don't want to be that person. But at the same time, it's just like there's no uh, there's no interest here past friendship. Why do I have to keep explaining this to you?
1: Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. You, as in men (laughs) all these guys in the class now i i I can understand that that's uh it's interesting to hear that side of things as well we have not touched on the book much at all for this one but it's been a great chat anyway i feel like people can draw (laughs) correlations you know there'll be stuff there i'm sure that's right and people
2: just go read the book it could just be like a good thing to do on the weekend if you're like all right what was that vague thing that sophie alluded to i'll just go read the book it's very good
1: <laughs> mm, I'll, put, I'll put in the show notes as well. But yeah, I, so one last thing before we sign off, though. Um, did you want to like spruik anything? Anyone want to check you out anywhere? People should follow you.
2: Yeah, I feel like a lot of the stuff that i am been working on recently has now come to an end, except as you mentioned before, I still do uh, Cosmos' Science Daily podcast. So that's a lot of fun. So um, as I said before, if you're interested in science and want little snippets of the cool new science that are happening in both Australia and around the world, if you check out Cosmos Science Daily, the only problem is that when you go to the podcast apps, you need to look up Cosmos Briefing. And it's the Science Daily episodes of Cosmos Briefing is where you'll find it. So it's a little bit odd. But, uh, yeah, that's mainly the thing I'm doing. And then also just do like a little bit of uh, freelance writing for Cosmos Magazine from time to time. So if you haven't actually subscribed, there's you get like a glossy print magazine and they've got Cosmos um, that comes out weekly as well. And then there's a lot of free articles too. And then they do other cool things like the Cinema, which is the International Science Film Festival. And I got to be a judge this year and be really judgmental about science movies. But, yeah, so I'd say go check out Cosmos and um, Cosmos Science Daily. It's a lot of fun. Well, we have fun. I think that's the main thing.
0: That is
1: always the main thing. Okay, great. Well, thanks very much, uh, Sophie. Uh, Thanks for being on.
2: Perfect. Thank you so much, George. I had a lot of fun.
1: Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at SansPants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as five dollars a month,
0: you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.
3: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.